Let's get right down to business. So I'm carrying on the series I began several weeks ago. Today I'm going to conclude it. It's called Simply Supernatural. What it's about is the fact that our domain is the supernatural doesn't belong to the vampires and the zombies and the paranormal psychics and psychos and, and, you know, everybody else, the New Age movement. This is ours. This is ours. And we're trying to reclaim it. So week one was supercharge me. Week two, I asked the question, superhero or sidekick? Week three, the secret to the superpowers. Week four, going supersonic, all about hearing from the Holy Spirit. And today my message is entitled, Being a Superconductor. I know for most of us, we're not scientists. So most of us aren't 100% sure what a superconductor is. And I'll tell you what it is. It's a material whose properties are such that electrical resistance completely vanishes in its presence. And this is an important thing for electricity. Electricity, the discovery of that has revolutionized modern life. Everything we have runs on electricity. But one of the challenges with it is electrical resistance. And the reason those wires, those big high tension wires just to the east of our building here, you've probably seen them on those big towers, they have to run 10,000 volts through those wires because of the resistance of, those, of that copper wire to get 220 to your house because these long distances. If they could get rid of the resistance, uh, electricity could become even more efficient than it is already. And I know a lot of you are thinking, oh, you know, Pastor Mark, I'm not clear what a superconductor is. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the definition. It'd be the simplest thing for me to do. You're all going to go, oh, I get it. And, and, and so here it is. Uh, listen carefully. This is what it is. Uh, an unconventional superconductor is any material where the superconducting order parameter transforms according to the non-trivial, irreducible representation of the point group or the space group of the system. So now I need you all to go, oh, I get it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's made up. That doesn't sound like a real thing to me. Uh, I know you're no more enlightened than you were before. I think that's from the script of uh, you know, Big Bang Theory. That's what I think that is. I think it's just a bunch of made up words. But uh, here's, here's superconductors that actually are very important. Uh, if, how many of you ever had a uh, medical MRI? You've ever been in an MRI? A bunch of you have, so you actually have experienced uh, superconductor at work. That's what, what, what powers these things. I had an MRI once, and they diagnosed that I was claustrophobic. That's, that's, that's what I learned from it. And whatever you do, don't take your wheelchair in with you, or this is what happens. Uh, it, it is a bunch of magnets. Uh, but really, the future of transportation is probably really rooted in superconducting. We're going to see electrical cars and vehicles and all things become way more efficient as a result of that when they finally get to room temperature superconductors. Now, uh, here, here's one of the examples I think is a great one as far as transportation. And it has to do with, the you know that Japan has the bullet trains, and they have the, what's called the maglev. Here's a picture of it. This train, are you ready for this? does 603 kilometers an hour. So over 600 kilometers an hour. It's an absolute rocket ship. And the reason it does that, the word maglev means magnetic levitation. It literally magnetically levitates above the track, so there's zero resistance against the, the ground. The only resistance is the wind, so that's why it's built like that. It's an absolute rocket ship. People say it's like being on an amusement ride when, when they're on it. And uh, that's what superconductors have the potential to do. So I need to tell you an important story. You're going to think this isn't important, but it, it really is. So there's this train conductor 
and uh, he's running a passenger train and he crashes the train and he survives the crash, but he kills all 100 passengers on his train. So he's tried, it's called criminal neglect and uh, it was such a serious crime, they decide they're gonna give him the death penalty and they're gonna electrocute him. And so when they were electrocuting him on the day of his execution, they said, you get a last meal, what would you like? He says, I want a banana. So he eats a banana, they put him in the electric chair, they pull the lever, nothing happens and he's completely fine. Now under federal law, they have to release him if it doesn't work, so they release him and, and being a Crown Corporation, the railway you know, hired him back. And, uh, and so a week later, he's running another train and he crashes it again and, and he survives, but he kills another 100 people. So now he gets tried again, convicted, sentenced again to the electric chair. He asks for his last meal, guess what he asked for? Uh, yeah, banana. So he eats his banana, they put him in the chair, they pull the lever, and again, he miraculously survives. So they let him go, and a week later, he's, he's back at work running a train, and, uh, and he crashes the train, and he, he kills another 100 people. So this time, when they're about to electrocute him, they said, uh, what do you want for your last meal? And when he asked for a banana, they went, uh-uh, we're not giving you a banana, no banana for you, and uh, we're not even giving you a meal. So they go, and they stick him in the chair, they pull the lever, nothing happens. And they went, huh, we thought that somehow the banana had properties that were allowing you to avoid electricity. He says, no, no, it's not the banana. I'm just a bad conductor. <laughs> That's good, huh? <laughs> you wait for it, right, bad conductor? Hey, and you say, I thought you said that was important. It is, here's my point. Some of you are bad conductors. <laughs> You are bad conductors. We're supposed to be conductors of the gospel, and some of us aren't doing near as good a job as we should be. We're supposed to be super conductors, not just conductors. And when it, when it comes to the gospel, here's how important it is. Uh, D.L. Moody said this. He said, out of 100 people, one are gonna read the Bible, and 99 are gonna read you. You're gonna read the Christian, right? And Paul said the same thing, did he not? He said, you are living epistles, known and read, by all men. In other words, he says, you know, what people are gonna get, their representation of the gospel is gonna be through you. It's your life, your life testifies. And there's ways that we can reduce the resistance. See, this whole message is about the fact that a superconductor, uh, under those properties, resistance vanishes. And I don't want you to miss that, that the key to bringing people to Christ is for us to lower the resistance to the gospel and there's ways that can happen. Now, there are sort of obvious ways that if we lived in integrity and honesty and kindness and compassion and those things, but there is something of the Holy Spirit that makes this a possibility beyond our abilities. Now, I wanna show it to you. It's in Acts chapter one, verse eight. This is what it says. This was the last thing Jesus said to his disciples, the very last thing. So I think we need to listen up. And he said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He says, listen, you're not gonna go do witnessing. Here's where we've made the mistake. Does he say go witnessing? Does he say go witness the gospel? No. He says you will be witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And I think it's a subtle mistake we've made. We think we need to go stand on the street corner and hand out tracts or witness to people. That's not what he told us to do. He said when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're gonna be witnesses. Your life is gonna be a witness. Because listen, we're not that smart to do it on our own. 
Have you noticed? We're not doing that great a job because we're trying to convince people in our own wisdom and our own strength, and we're not doing a very good job. We are not actually equipped for that. And when I look at what's happening in our world, I think the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and the CBC and the CTV and CNN and the rest of them, I think they're doing a better job of, of selling secular humanism and Darwinian evolution and apocalyptic climate change than we are of selling the gospel. And the key is not for us to get smarter, although that wouldn't kill you. The key is not to get smarter. The key is to begin to rely on the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will can do you with power, and then you shall be witnesses. Case in point, Jesus said this to him, to them, 10 days later, day of Pentecost, 120 people got filled with the Holy Spirit, tumbled out in the streets. Who knows how many people came to Christ day one of the birth of the church? How many? I heard it. 3,000 people in one day. 3,000 people in one day. Could, could they have done it on their own strength? Couldn't have done it. They had, there had to be something at work in them, and we know what it was. It was the Holy Spirit. Paul knew it. This is what he said. He said, my speech and my preaching are not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and the power that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And what we need to do is embrace this promise that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and make you witnesses. So here's what it is to become a superconductor where resistance to the gospel fades. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. Got two things. Number one, superconductors bring healing to the hurting. Number two, superconductors have a love for the lost. So I want you to think about something for a moment. Uh, when it comes to people coming to Christ, no two people come to Christ the same way. If you ask 10 people, if you ask 100 people, you're going to hear different, 100 different stories because different people had different felt needs, different people had different things that they were going through or struggling with or whatever. And what God did was God reached down from his throne in heaven and he ministered to those particular felt needs. And as a result, that person came to Christ. And only the Holy Spirit can be that specific. That's why standing on the street corner and yelling, repent for the end is near, is not very effective. Because when the Holy Spirit is at work, what he does is he goes and he finds the particular need of the individual and ministers to that need. So I want to give you Jesus' mission statement. It's, it's beautiful. It's uh, when he began his ministry, he went to his hometown of Nazareth. Everybody knew him. He went into the uh, synagogue on that particular Sabbath. They gave him the, the scroll, the Bible, to read, and he found the place. It didn't just open there. He found the place in Isaiah, and this is what he read. This I'm reading from Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who were oppressed or are oppressed. So we look at that. This is Jesus' mission statement. He says, this is what I have come to do, all of these things. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but these things cover a lot of ground. He's talking about meeting people's financial needs. At least part of the good news for the poor would have to be, you don't have to be poor anymore. He's talking about emotional needs, healing the broken heart. He's talking about spiritual needs, people who are oppressed and people who are in some sort of situation. He's talking about physical needs, recover sight of the blind. And what we've done in North America, and I'm not trying to be too critical here, we've kind of over undersold the gospel, haven't we? 
Here's how we preach the gospel. Think about it. Here's how we preach the gospel. We tell people that if they invite Jesus into their heart, they will be saved. And when they die, they can go to heaven. Does that sound about right? This is what we focus on. When you die, you get to go to heaven. Do you know what? Here's what I've discovered. Most people aren't thinking about where they're going when they die. You know what they're thinking about? What they're going to do while they're here alive. That's sort of where people live. They live in the moment where they are. And it's really hard to get them focused on the next life when their life they're in now is in such a schmoz. And the work of the Holy Spirit to bringing people to Christ is to actually to go and to minister to those felt needs. And that's why Jesus said, this is my mission. Did you notice he didn't even mention heaven? I mean, I suppose it's implied, and he talks about it in other places, but he says, I'm actually coming to heal the brokenhearted and preach the gospel to the poor. I'm coming to heal people. I'm coming to set people free. That's what I'm coming to do. And that's why people came to Christ. Makes sense, doesn't it? If you're not getting it, I'm going to give you a couple of stories here that'll help illustrate this. So let's talk about blind Bartimaeus for a moment. What was blind Bartimaeus' fundamental problem? Yeah, he was blind. He was blind. Not a trick question. He, he was blind. But was that his only problem? No, it wasn't his only problem. But that particular problem of blindness precipitated a whole bunch of other problems. You know, for, for example, because he was blind, he couldn't work. Because he was blind, he was a beggar. Because he was blind, he was homeless. Because he was blind, he lived on the street and he was filthy. And he lived with the reproach of people who treated him and looked down on him because he was a beggar. And so when Jesus comes along and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, Jesus restores his sight. But once his sight was restored, right, because that's what he came to do, part of his mission, the recovery of the sight to the blind, which is exactly what he did in blind Bartimaeus' case, did anything else change in his life? Every, everything would have changed. Everything. He would no longer have been living in, in the streets. He would have no longer been filthy. He would have been able, because he had a sight, he'd be able to now go in his culture and earn a living and, and have a proper life. Everything changed because Jesus ministered to the place in which he hurt. Second story I want to share with you is Mary Magdalene. What was Mary Magdalene's fundamental problem? Anybody know? I'll give you a hint. She had seven something. Not seven pairs of shoes. What did she have? Seven what? Seven, seven evil spirits. She has seven demons in her. That's a lot of demons. That's more demons than most of you. And, and <laughs> thank you for getting that. And, and so, so what does Jesus do? What did he do? He cast the demons, all seven of them, out of her. See, that was her felt need. He said this, he came to set the captives free. She was a captive. She was oppressed by the devil. He released her from those things. How did her life change? In every way, shape, and form, you can imagine her life was transformed. In fact, I love the story of Mary Magdalene because she became Jesus' most devoted follower. When the other, when the other male disciples were running, hiding, who was there? Mary Magdalene. You see, something happens when Jesus comes and he ministers into the specific area of one's life. You're catching this, right? Now, I want, I want to tell you one more story. Because this next story, Jesus didn't do a miracle, and he didn't do a, a healing, and he didn't do a deliverance. And it's the story of the Samaritan woman. So Jesus and his disciples are passing through Samaria. They stop at this well. The disciples have gone to town for food. And this woman, a Samaritan woman, comes to the well in the middle of the afternoon to draw water. It's a little tougher, but what was her fundamental problem? The problem was that she lived in shame. 
because she was a woman of ill repute. And we find that out in the story later. So that's why she's not gathering water in the morning with the other woman, because she doesn't want to face the derision that she gets from, from others. So she comes in the afternoon, and unfortunately, she's run into this, this Jewish man. And so this might not go well. But he starts talking to her and engaging her, and, and she doesn't like coming there. She thinks her problem is water, doesn't she? Because she doesn't want to have to come and get, gather water. So Jesus kind of goes right after her. He says, you know, I could give you living water and you thirst no more. So she says, well, that sounds pretty cool. I'd, I'd kind of dig some of that water. How would I get some of that water? He says, well, go get your husband and we'll discuss it with him. She says, well, I have no husband. He says, you got that right, sweetheart. You've had five husbands and the one you're with right now is not your husband. Boom, gotcha, booyah. How, how, how did he do that? Well, the Holy Spirit revealed that to him, right? He had no way of knowing that. So she knows that. And she says, I perceive you are a prophet. And so he, he didn't do a miracle. He didn't do a healing. He didn't do a deliverance. But he gave, he had a prophetic word where he figured out what her real issue was in her life. And he addressed that felt need. And she goes running back to town telling everyone, I have found the Messiah. So we know she came to Christ because Jesus zeroed in on this. And I want you to tell you, tell you something, people. Every one of us can do this. The Holy Spirit can use us. When we embrace him and say, you know what? I'm not that smart. I can't do this on my own. And we embrace the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can lead you and actually can show you things that you wouldn't possibly know otherwise. So I want to tell you an amazing historical story about this. And it, it goes back to the 19th century. There was a revivalist by the name of Charles Finney. Some of you may have heard this name. Here's a picture of him. Uh, he's a bit of a drastic looking fellow, but piercing blue eyes. And, uh, and he was one of the most effective evangelists of all history. And during the uh, 1800s, uh, he was in the upstate New York, and he was probably had about 10 years of intense revival where almost every single person in upstate New York came to Christ. There was an area where there was no churches and there was no pastors and people had fallen away fr from, from any form of religion. And God came upon this man and used him in a profound way where he saw literally tens of thousands of people uh, come to Christ. So this one particular story was uh, in a city of Antwerp and uh, about 1825, and he was preaching. It's a great story on his own. All these stories are recorded. These are from his biography or his autobiography. He's, he's written about them. And so people come to Christ and amazing things happen. And at the end of the meeting on this Sunday afternoon, an elderly man comes up to him and he says, I live in the next town just down this road. Would you come and preach to my town tomorrow? So Finney agreed to do it and said, I could be there by five o'clock. If you can gather some people, I'll come and I'll preach to them. So he didn't catch the man's name and the man left. And, and so anyway, he spent the night and then he, the next morning he started walking. And as he walked and started approaching this, this city still several miles away, he had this, incent, this intense feeling of foreboding, of, of struggle, of conflict, of spiritual oppression. So much so that he couldn't walk and he would bow down and he would kneel and he would pray and then he'd get up again and he'd go another mile or two and bow down and pray again. And, and uh, he just thought, there's something, I am up against something I've never faced before. And on the third stop, he finally got a release to be able to go into the city the rest of the way and God had given him a message that he felt was specific for that town. 
So he gets to the town. He's there in time for the five o'clock meeting. They have no church. There's no pastor. Uh, they're meeting in the schoolhouse. It's the only place to meet. So he goes to the schoolhouse. To his surprise, the place is full. Now, the reason these places were full was his fame had gone out throughout the upstate New York. Everybody knew who he was. So for no other reason than curiosity, people showed up. So he, they tried to, he tried to lead some, in some hymns, and nobody knew any hymns, and nobody could sing. So he thought, I'll just abandon that. I'll just start to my message. So he started preaching. And uh, what he had chosen, what he had felt like God had told him to speak on, is tell the story of the destruction of the city of Sodom and how Abraham pleaded with God not to destroy the city. So he's telling this story about this city named Sodom and how this good man, Abraham, said, if I can find 10 righteous men in the city, will you not destroy it? And God said, yes. But he couldn't find even 10 righteous men in the city of Sodom. There was only one righteous man in the whole city, and his name was Lot. And he said to Lot, get out of the city, for I must destroy this city. Well, as he was preaching away, the people were getting angrier and angrier. And he felt that any time someone was going to rush up to the front and, and cock him one, he was a little concerned about it. But he just kept on pressing in. And then all of a sudden, something strange happened. People started to, to uh, cry and wail and moan. And people started falling on the floor. And people were overcome with, with grief or, or conviction or he wasn't sure what it was. So much so that there was so much noise in the schoolhouse, no one was listening to him anymore. He couldn't even hear his own voice, so he stopped preaching. And then right in the middle, right smack in the middle, the only one still standing was the man who had invited him to the meeting. And he's standing there like this, looking around at all these town folks, wondering what's going on. And then he turns to him, he says, come on, man, the least you can do is pray. And so he didn't know what to do. And then he looked at his feet, and there was a young man bowed down, wailing and crying right at his feet. And so he thought, well, I might as well minister to this guy. And he knelt down and he, and he whispered the gospel into this young man's ear and he shared Christ with him. And the, and the first person in that town came to Christ, this young man. And then they began to, he began to minister to people all night long, sharing Christ and going around this group of people, still wailing, still under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the meeting went all night long. All night long, they were still there in the morning when the kids showed up for school. And so, so they had to leave. They had to leave the building. The meeting was over because it's time for class to start. And so anyway, this was a crazy thing. And he didn't figure out until the very, very end of that, that next day what had gone on. And it turns out this, that the name of the city, honest to God, true story, the name of the city was Sodom, New York. And the name of the man who invited him was Lot, the only righteous man. Now he knew why everybody was mad at him. He was talking about the wickedness of Sodom and how the only righteous man, they thought that he was literally talking about them because they didn't know the Bible from Adam. And only God can orchestrate a moment like that. And then what happened was 20 years later, he was preaching in the Syracuse and a man came up to him and said, do you remember me? He said, I meet a lot of people, sir, I don't remember you. He says, when you were in Sodom, New York, I was a young man that knelt at your feet and you led me to Christ. And I just wanted to report back to you that I am the pastor of the church in Sodom. <laughs> I mean, it's such a great, crazy story. Who names your town Sodom? And who names your son Lot? What kind of parent is that, right? But here's how God works. God doesn't have to use you consciously. You don't have to be aware of these things. God can use you even despite you. 
Aren't you excited about that? See, that's how I work. It turns out I'm not that bright. I don't know if you know that. Well, I know you figured that out. And so I have to, I have to rely on the Holy Spirit to do stuff for me so he can do it. He do, does it unawares. And unbeknownst to me, he uses me in strange and unusual ways. And, and people come and say, you know, thank you for this or thank you for that. And I have no idea what happened because God is doing the work. It has nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. I'll tell you one little story about this. So, so one, one Sunday, this, this young man came up to me and he, he wanted prayer and he never told me his name or, 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 or much really. He just said, he said, can you pray for me? I've got a really, really strained relationship. Can you pray for me? I said, sure, I, I can pray for you. I'm assuming if it's a young man, his strained relationship is with his wife or girlfriend, right? It's always, it's always a gal. That's what I'm assuming. So that's kind of where I was kind of leaning and I was praying. But as I was praying for him, I felt like God gave me a story, you all know. And it was a story of David and his father-in-law, Saul. So I said to him, you know, here's my advice to you. I don't know exactly what's going on in your life, but here's my advice to you. You know, before King David was a king, he was the son-in-law of Saul. He was married to Saul's daughter, and Saul hated him so much he wanted to kill him. I said, I don't know what's going on in your life, but it, probably my guess is nobody's trying to kill you. But anyway, here's how David did, dealt with it. He could have retaliated. He has two opportunities to kill his father-in-law, but he passed them up, and he let God resolve it and let God deal with it. And my advice to you is to let this go and let God deal with it, whatever it is. I've seen pretty good, good advice. So then uh, he turns to me and he said, uh, how did you know all that? I said, what? He says, who told you? Who told you all that? I said, nobody told me all that. I read it in the Bible. <laughs> you know? He says, no, who told you that my name was David and my struggle is with my father? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, ow! <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea. And I thought, you know what? The Holy Spirit showed me that, right? See, that's how it works. You don't have to be aware of what's going on. All you have to do is be a vessel and say, God, I want to be a superconductor. I want to see the resistance to the gospel vanish as you begin to work through me, right? You know, when I got married, when I was about to ask Kathy to marry me, I actually went to her father and asked for her hand in marriage because it's the right thing to do. So when I asked him, he says to me, so you want to be my son-in-law, do you? To which I said, not particularly, but if, I'm, but if I marry your daughter, I don't really have any choice. <laughs> Always been a smart aleck. So the first thing is this, is that a superconductor brings healing to the hurting. And we let God work that. Second thing is this. A superconductor have love for the lost. You know, when you look at Jesus, he, I don't know if you know that. I use him a lot as an example because he's really, really good at all this stuff. And one of the things he did was he knew how to love people. Because, I mean, think about it. Was he, was he, people, were people coming to him because he was soft-soaping the gospel? And he said, well, don't worry about all those rules. Don't worry about the Ten Commandments. Was he doing that? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? He's creaming these people. And he's telling them uh, that they need to get it straight. And yet, the sinners flock to him, and the prostitutes flock to him, and the tax collectors flock to him. Why? Because they knew that he loved them. And the, and the love was the thing that opened up the door. They, he may have you know, given them some tough lessons in life, but he always spoke the truth in love. One of the interesting stories for me is, is Matthew chapter 14. So you've got Jesus. He's been ministering to this multitude 
all day long, healing the sick and preaching. He's got to be exhausted. I think I can relate a little bit to this story that after a whole day of ministering to people, and here's what happens. It says he, he uh, retreated to a deserted place by himself. What was he doing? Take a wild stab at it. He was tired. He was human. He wanted to get away from all of these people. And so he's gone off to this deserted place, but who remembers what happened? It says, but the crowd followed him. What would you do? Be honest. You've had the longest day of your life. You've never worked so hard in your life, and people are following you. You would run. And I'd be the guy in front of you running even faster, right? <laughs> we, 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 do, we would do that. Is that what Jesus did? It says, and Jesus had compassion on the multitude, and he healed all their sick. You see, that's what Jesus did. He, he, he actually overlooked his own needs so that he could minister to the needs of others. And see, everybody in this room knows probably, you could all probably recite the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And you probably all know the Great Commandment, which is what? Tell me. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your might, all your soul, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And for whatever reason, people think that the Great Commission and the Great Commandment are somehow mutually exclusive. Why haven't we seen that they are inextricably connected? And that the Great Commission is the what? The Great Commandment is the how. And the only way that the gospel ever works is when we love the people who are lost, where we demonstrate that in a way that it reduces their resistance to the gospel and they want to hear from us. So I have a great story. Some of you have been around long enough, you'll have heard this story. It will illustrate my point so clearly, I have to tell it. And so here's what happened. So when the church was small, and we were not too far into it. Uh, I, I really wanted to see us evangelizing people. I wanted us to be witnesses. But really what I was trying to get people is to, to do witnessing, not be witnesses. So I decided I was gonna teach a class on evangelism. That's what I was gonna do. We were all gonna become evangelists. And there was a, a program, an evangelistic program back in the day called Evangelism Explosion. Anybody ever heard of that? Everyone, a couple of hands in the whole room have heard of this. Not too many people have heard of it. It works perfectly, by the way. First time I tried it, it worked like a charm. The guy literally exploded. And, <laughs> and so yeah, I'm going to tell you the story. So, so I decided I was going to teach this course. I advertised it to the congregation. And on the Tuesday night, first Tuesday night, I had exactly 12, count them, 12 people showed up. And there was, think about this. I was going to train 12 people to evangelize like I am. I am so much like Jesus in so many ways. Have you noticed this? these similarities come back up all the time? So there I was, I had my 12 disciples, and every Tuesday night we gathered them, and, and I taught out of the manual on evangelism explosion. I taught them how to do something that I had never done before myself. <laughs> I'd never done it. I'd never even tried it. And I was teaching them week after week after week, and th these guys weren't smart enough not to come back, and they kept on coming back week after week. And then, then on the eighth week, I told them on the eighth week, we were done the classes on the seventh, and we were going to do the activation on the eighth week, and they should show up, and we were going to go, and we were going to evangelize people. 
So here's what we did. I took me and my 12 disciples that I mentioned, they were 12 of them, and, uh, and uh, we, we decided to go down to Fort Richmond Mall. How many of you remember Fort Richmond Mall? It was down here in Pamina, and uh, it's a Sobeys today. They tore down the mall. It was a loser of a mall. I mean, it was always empty. There was nobody in it. You could shoot a cannonball through it. And so we walk into the mall. I'm expecting a bunch of people. We walk in the mall. There's not one person in the mall except one East Indian man sitting on a bench in the middle. You know, the bored husband bench. I think that's what they're affectionately called. And so he's sitting there. There's nobody else, nobody else in the mall. And so I turned to my disciples and I said, so let me show you how it's done. I'll, I'll do the first one. <laughs> the only one, I guess. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do the first guy. And uh, you guys just kind of you know, hover around behind me and just listen and learn, okay? And so, <laughs> I'm such a dope. So, so, so anyway, the, the disciples follow me. We come up around behind the bench where uh, the guy is sitting. And, and so, so they're all, you know, this is, I, have 12, I have 12 guys looking over the shoulder of this, this sole East Indian man sitting on the bench minding his own business. And this is what I did. I had my Bible. I took my Bible and I went and sat down right beside him. Right beside him like this, like right, right beside him. There's 50 other benches, they're all empty. And I, I sit right beside him. This, this poor guy is minding his own business. To this day, I'd like to find him and apologize to him. <laughs> That's what I would like to do. So, so anyway, I, I sit down and, and my disciples, did I mention them? They're, they're, they're right there and they're just sort of listening and lurking behind me. And, and I, I gotta admit, I got a little nervous. I'm a little bit nervous about this. You know, I got my disciples watching and this better go well. So I didn't introduce myself. I didn't ask him his name. I didn't do, I didn't get, take any effort to get to know who he was. And I just launched right into it and I said, excuse me, sir. I wonder if I could read you a passage from the book of Romans. <laughs> and, and this is what happened. He jumped to his feet and he said, get away, get away from me. I have my own religion. I don't need your religion. Get away from me, get away from me. You are a very bad man, Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> he, didn't say, he didn't say the last part. This is the honest to God truth. He didn't say the Jerry Seinfeld, but he did tell me to get away, get away. And so then I, I got away and, and, and I, I backed up. Now, my disciples were there. They, they saw the whole thing and they're going like, they're going like this. They're completely wigging out. And uh, he, he ran away. The guy ran away. And so I thought, I got to make some lemonade here. I got to explain to these guys what happened. I got to try to put as positive a spin on it as possible. So I went over to them and I said, Okay, so that didn't go sort of as well as I had hoped. <laughs> Who wants to go next? <laughs> and they all said, no one, no one wants to, no one wants to go next. And they all went out and got in their cars and drove away. And it was like the worst evangelism experience in my life. And I thought, note to self, don't do that again. <laughs> And you know, you all, we all have these moments where we do something really dumb, but sometimes they really help us in knowing, okay, that's not how I'm supposed to do it. First of all, let me go right back to where I began this. The scriptures does not command us to go and preach the gospel. 
I've told you this before, that the word go is as you go. You're not supposed to go and do witnessing. You're as you go, you are to be a witness. Your life is a witness, a living epistle known and read by all men. People, you just need to be it and let the Holy Spirit work in you. Doesn't that sound easier and, and less pressure on you? So let me just end with one final story about this where I did a little bit better job than this. So a bunch of you know I'm a, t I'm a tennis player. I play in a couple of men's groups. I have uh, one group of men that are younger than me, one group of men that I play that are all older than me. I like that group because I can beat those old coots. And you know, they're, they're like 70 and 80 years old, and I'm dominating my class. Love that group. Uh, but they're an interesting bunch of guys. You know, they're old curmudgeons and whatever. And uh, in every group of men, and this is the universal truth, there's always a class clown. And the class clown of this group is a guy named Brian. And when, when I met Brian, he's always cracking jokes and insulting people, or he's funny as anything. Uh, but when I met Brian, first of all, he found out I was a preacher. But then when he found out I was a television preacher, well, that just set him on. And so he says, a televangelist? Hey, I know you televangelists are all like. He says, I guess you own a jet, hey? And I said, don't be ridiculous. The church owns the jet. I don't, I don't own the jet personally. And then he says, I bet you ask the people to give you all their money, don't you? And I said, no, no. I just asked for 10%. That's all I need. I'm not a greedy man. And he's actually pretty funny, but you're not going to smart, outsmart out, Mark Hughes, are you? You know, you're not going to be able to do it. So, so anyway, the funniest thing he ever said, though, I got to tell you this story, was uh, Kathy came one day at the end of a match to pick me up. And we were standing around with a bunch of these guys. And so Kathy comes up. She's a very beautiful woman, as you know. And she stands up. And I said, oh, hey, everybody, this is my wife, Kathy. To which Brian says, she's your wife? What's wrong with her? Is she blind? <laughs> so anyway, this guy hacked on me day and night. He mocked me. He mocked my religion. He mocked my faith. And you know what? I thought, I don't care. I'm going to love this guy whether he loves me back or not. And uh, so here's what's sort of ironic about this after making fun of televangelists. One day he shows up, actually it's our last game of the year, he shows up and he's very discouraged about something and it turns out uh, about a week or two before he'd gone deaf in one ear, completely deaf. And he'd gone to the doctor and he says, the doctors don't know what's wrong with it. I've gone deaf in this one ear. And he says, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know what to do about it. And, and then he's turned to me and he says, if you were any kind of televangelist, you would lay hands on me and heal me. That's what you're supposed to do. He's mad at me. And I said, you know, Brian, I'd be happy to pray for you. And then just then our game had to start. So we went off to our, our game. And so we played the game. We, the day was over and uh, we're all leaving all these guys. And he looks at me and he says, hey, preacher, I thought you said you were going to lay hands on me to heal me. And I said, you, you want me to do that right now in front of all these guys? And he said, yeah, that's what televangelists do, don't they? They lay hands in front of people and they heal them. Why don't you heal my ear? And I said, okay. I said, I'm not sure I can heal you, but, but Jesus can. And so I said, let me pray for you. And then the, the weirdest thing happened. All the guys took off their baseball caps and, and, and they all bowed their heads in prayer. They were all respectful. And, and so I, I prayed for Brian in front of all these guys. So I thought I might as well m make it well. And so I cast the devil, come out, you fellas. <laughs> not what I did. <laughs> I felt like it. <laughs> but I just put my hand on his ear and I just prayed for him and I prayed that God would, 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 heal, would heal his ear. And I said, amen. And he went like this. 
didn't work. <laughs> he walked away. He's such a jerk sometimes. So anyway, that was it. I didn't see these guys for, for six months. Six months later, we're all getting back together. We're all coming onto the court. And who should come in? But Brian, and he's practically skipping, and he's going, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, I'm healed. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, I'm, I'm healed. <laughs> and so I said, I didn't know if he was just mocking me or what he was. Well, he was mocking me, just so you know. But, but I said, so Brian, like, uh, I see you praising the Lord. That's a good thing. Uh, what, what's going on? He said, my ear is healed. He said, three weeks after you prayed for me, my ear all of a sudden miraculously opened up. Doctors didn't know what happened and why it opened up again, but my hearing's back. Praise the Lord. <laughs> He's immaculate. So all these guys are listening to this. Some of them were there. Some of them weren't when I prayed for them. So one other guy says, is he some sort of a preacher or something? He points at me, asking Brian this question, and Brian says, yeah, he's one of those televangelists, and he's not a phony like those other ones in television. This guy actually laid hands on me and healed me. <laughs> and I, I had to crack up. I thought, it's funny how God has this sense of humor in the midst of this. And if we will avail ourselves to be used of the Holy Spirit. He will do remarkable things with you. You don't even have to know what's going on. Isn't that a relief? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Let's stand together. All right, we're going to all bow our heads and close our eyes. I know that was an entertaining morning for you, but I hope you got the point. And there may be people here that have never invited Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior, and I want to give you an opportunity today. And I'm not going to single you out or call you forward. I'm not going to ask you to say anything publicly. And yes, when you come to Christ, you do get an invitation to heaven when you die. But I'm telling you, everything else I talked about today is also true. That God wants to minister to your individual needs and give you a life more abundantly here on earth. So if you're here today, you've never made that decision to be a follower of Jesus, and you'd like to do that. Nobody's looking around. Every head is bowed. It's between you and me and Jesus. If you just raise your hand, slip it up, let me know. I want to pray with you, and, and we're not going to single you out. Just take a moment. I'm going to look around the room. And, okay. All right. Great. Super. Now, let's do, let's do this. Uh, when I say this prayer, this prayer is going to be for everybody. Because I'm going to also be asking Jesus to make you a superconductor by his Holy Spirit. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the cross that you died for me. And you invaded my life. And you brought me life and life more abundantly. And you set me at liberty. You healed my body. You healed my emotions. You healed my broken heart. And you not only died, but you rose again. And you forever lived to be my Lord. And you've set me on a mission. A mission to be a superconductor. To share the gospel with a world that's lost and dying, hurting and in pain. And I thank you this day that I am powered by the Holy Spirit and that I am a superconductor and resistance to the gospel vanishes. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give him a big shout.